0: Good morning, Village Church East. Welcome to Village Church Online. We're here again in my home. I know I'm in your home. We continue to study through the book of Exodus and do church together in this very unique way uh, during this pandemic. It's also ironic and poetic that we're studying through the Exodus and the plagues uh, during this time. Uh, But in God's good sovereignty, this is where we are and where we're studying this morning again. So let's get into God's word this morning have you ever noticed like maybe during this time, during this time of being home a little bit more, have you been into the movies a little bit more? You've been, you've been tapping into Disney plus for the kids, keeping them sane a little bit. Every good movie, every good epic seems to be a line that is connected to it. You know, I'll be back or, uh, there, there's all kinds of these lines that we remember, uh, that make these epic moments memorable. Uh, Give me liberty or give me death. Do you remember that one? That's Patrick Henry at the Second Virginia Convention in 1775. Uh, Or how about this one? One small step for man, uh, man, one giant leap for mankind. I got confused on that one because Neil Armstrong actually didn't intend to say exactly those words. But when he stepped out of the lunar module on the moon, um, he quoted these words. And even though he didn't intend for it to say quite that, it came out as an epic phrase that we remember. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Or maybe you've been watching the movies and you love the epic statements in the movies, like uh, Mel Gibson uh, in his portrayal of Scotland, kicking off the tyrannical uh, boot of the English uh, tyranny that they were in. And when he yelled, freedom, in his uh, interpretation of Braveheart. These lines are memorable because they hold a deeper meaning than a simple phrase, a simple statement. There is a depth to the statement that rings true and stays in our minds. And if I were to ask you, what is the epic statement that you remember from the story of the Exodus, you would probably easy fall on it. What is the epic statement? Let my people go. It's in every movie. It's in in every portrayal of Moses and Aaron freeing the slaves. It's all peppered through the Old Testament when Moses keeps coming to Pharaoh and ticking him off and getting uh, Pharaoh aggravated with hearing this crazy phrase, this epic statement over and over again. But let me ask you this question. When you hear this phrase, let my people go, what comes to mind? A phrase like this, holds a deep meaning. Now think about it. In this statement, there is a claim of ownership, my people. In this statement, there's a declaration that a theft had occurred. Let my people go. In this statement, there's an assigning of personal value that God has for these slaves, my people. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just look at this phrase because in the next two plagues that come up, God makes a distinction between those who are his people and those who are not. There is a deep truth hiding under the surface of this epic phrase. And the bottom line is this, church. By the end of this, we're going to see in this phrase that God cares for his own. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Exodus chapter 9 and verse 1. We pick up on the fifth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Here you go, church. Let's say it together, All right? Let my people go that they may serve me. This phrase is a distinct phrase because God is saying right in this passage of scripture, I am the God of the Hebrews. These people are distinct. I belong to them. They belong to me. I have a special relationship with them. They have a special relationship with me. And note, God makes no apologies for this. God doesn't look at Pharaoh and say, I know this is going to be rough to hear. You've been serving all these other different gods, and you're not included in this group. He doesn't do any of that. All he says is, this group is mine. Let my people go. Yahweh declares to be the God of the Hebrew people, and he declares they belong to him. Have you ever thought about what it means for God to claim a group of people? For God to say, these people are mine. Imagine if you would, if you had a very special gift that you wanted to give to somebody else. Maybe your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or, or your, your sibling or a friend, a very close friend. You sacrifice to get this thing. It means a lot. You've, maybe you've traveled the world in order to get it. But it has a special meaning to you. Maybe you've sacrificed finances or labored a long time in order to afford it. But that thing you have gotten means so much to you. And when you give it to somebody else, you know that it holds a deep meaning for them as well. And so they'll take care of it. It ends up sitting on their shelf. But maybe they build a special shelf for it, like the shelf for my girls' pictures right up here. These are special things that we put up and they don't necessarily mean a whole lot to somebody else, but to us, they hold a great value. There's a meaning deep inside there that means a lot to us. Now imagine this. Imagine if somebody steals that thing. They break into the house. They steal it from the person you gave it to, from the person that you shared this moment with. They've taken a treasure, something of value to you and something of value to somebody else And they simply grab it and take it and steal it. They post it on eBay and they get an amount of money for it. And they use it for their own selfish purposes. They've taken something that belonged to somebody else and they turned it into something less. It has become a tool for them so that they can personally get ahead. It holds some value to them because they were able to sell it. But the actual value of that thing has been depleted. The devaluing, church, is more offensive than the stealing of the gift itself. The fact that somebody would not hold the value that you or your friend hold in that thing, they simply take it and use it as a tool to get ahead. That is more offensive than the actual theft. Church, this is what Pharaoh has done with God's people. Pharaoh has taken God's people and use them as a tool for himself to get ahead. God still cares for these people in a very special way, but Pharaoh has taken what belongs to God, what God values in a special way, and he has devalued it because Pharaoh is abusing what God treasures. When God says, let my people go, all of that meaning is crunched in, is squished in, so that when we, the reader, read this, we are meant to see a God who is offended. You are taking something of value to me and you are abusing it and turning it into a tool, something of way less value, and something that selfishly gets you ahead. These are not your people, God says. These are my people. Verse 2 If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Notice that Moses says, if you refuse to let them go, Pharaoh is still responsible here. God is hardening his heart. That's true. But there's an aspect of this that Pharaoh is absolutely guilty of. He is hardening his own heart. It is absolutely true that Pharaoh sees all of these miracles of God and chooses not to respond favorably, not to bend the knee to Yahweh. So it's both and. God is hardening his heart and Pharaoh is fostering an already hard heart. Now, why the livestock? Why does God go after the livestock? Well, This is an attack against the superiority of Egypt. This is a very unique way for God to bring a plague against a powerful nation. You see, a plague with livestock, with lots of livestock, would have food and milk and clothing. They would have transportation and be able to trade with the nations around them. All of these things would be available to a nation that had a lot of livestock. God hits Egypt's livestock. Everything that gave Egypt a leg up on the nations around them, was now being afflicted with a disease. The strength of Egypt was seen in its livestock. And one of the most uh, uh, formidable livestock is the bull. The bull is a epitome of strength. And in Egypt, that was true as well. When I go fishing, I, I sometimes am fishing around cows in pastures and I always watch out for the cows. But what I'm really looking for is the bull, because in this group of cows, there's usually a bull, and he's the one you don't want to mess with. In Egypt, the bull was seen as this god of strength. uh, Apis was the god that was uh, characterized as a bull, but there were all kinds of other gods that had bull characteristics to them. Isis was the queen of the gods, and she had bull horns on her. Hathor was protector of the king. And he had a cow's head. There's a reason we look at the bull and we think strong. I mean, strong like bull. We even use phrases like that. It's because the bull represented the strength of Egypt. And it was seen in a lot of these different gods. Pharaoh, who, Pharaoh saw himself as the bull who was keeping Israel where they needed to be. Bulls bully. And Pharaoh was bullying God's people. But God is about to show Pharaoh that he has more power to free them than Pharaoh has power to hold them. Let me say that one more time because it's a good buildup. God is about to show Pharaoh that he has more power to free them than Pharaoh has power to hold them. Look in verse 4. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die here you have it i will make a distinction yahweh is going to hit egypt's symbol of power their livestock but do you know whose livestock is not going to be hit with disease israel's hebrews all of their livestock would be fine only egypt their livestock would suffer god wanted the egyptian people to understand there is a distinction here You are either with the group of God's people or you are outside of the group of God's people. And when he brought this disease against the livestock, against the power of Egypt, he was making a distinction as to which one, which side he was on. Look at verse five. The Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Tomorrow is, again, an amazing concept that God has this ability, this power to not only bring a plague, but to say when it starts and to have the power to say when it ends. God is orchestrating this whole thing and no one else. Verse six, the next day the Lord did this thing, just like he had prophesied. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but none of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Now, please note, All of the livestock of Egypt probably means all kinds of the livestock of Egypt. Egypt is left with a little bit of livestock. We know this because they're about to get diseases in the next plague. And they use them to chase down the the Israelites uh, when when Pharaoh changes his mind after the last plague. So we know they still have some livestock. But the bottom line is their livestock has been decimated. Israel now has more livestock, more symbol of power, more economical depth, strength, than Egypt has. Egypt has been dealt a blow by God against their economic status. Now the slaves are more powerful than their slave owners. Verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Get that. Not one. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. God has made the power to thrive in Israel, and he has diminished the power of Egypt. The point is this. Livelihood and economic stability was on Egypt's side, and now God has taken it away. None of the livestock of the Israelites have died. And Pharaoh is in complete, believe it or not, disbelief. (laughs) He can't believe this. So what does he do? He sends to find out if the rumors are true. You see, for Pharaoh, flies were an inconvenience. Lice and maggots, those stuff that they were walking on, those were just gross. It was a symbolism of death. The Nile was symbolic. It brought life to Egypt, and then it was turned to blood. All of that was symbolic. But what happens when your livestock goes? It is going to take some time to rebuild. Egypt has been dealt an economic blow that is going to take them years to come out of. Pharaoh sent this group of people to find out if the rumors are true. All our livestock are dead and none of the Israelites' livestock are dead? That can't be true. What are they feeding those cows? So he sends a group of people. Israel now, because they have the livestock, they have food, they have milk, they have clothing, they have transportation, and Egypt does not. Pharaoh is getting a lesson, and the lesson is this. God cares for his own. Pharaoh knows he is not in the category of people that God now cares for. He knows it. And this point is driven home even more in one more plague. Verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. Now, church, where does soot come from? It comes from the kiln. What are kilns used for? They're used for making bricks. And who, church, who made the bricks for construction in Egypt? the Israelites. It is poetic justice that Pharaoh saw Moses not take dirt from the ground, not mix up mud on his own. He walked all the way to the kilns, to the place where the Israelites sweat and bled from their hands and from their knees as they made bricks. And he took that sweaty, gross soot with the sweat of the Israelites' brows fallen upon it, throws it in the air, and that very soot becomes plagues that now fall down on the Egyptians. Ashes from these furnace, furnaces, these kilns, where God saw his people suffer was now being used to make the Egyptians suffer because, church, God cares for and defends his own. Look in verse 9. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become, get this, boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. Pharaoh saw this. He saw where the soot came from. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. What God is being attacked here? Many of them. Many of the gods of Egypt had the power to heal. Many have the power over disease. Two of the ones are listed here on the screen. Imhentep, the god of medicine, and Sekhmet, the goddess over war and disease. All of these gods and many others like them had the power to heal, had the power to control disease. And now in this plague, that control, that power would be removed from them. It's also interesting when you sacrifice to these gods, when you needed healing for your son or for your daughter or for your family. When you needed healing, you would go and you would make a sacrifice to these gods. Sometimes you would sacrifice even human beings. It had to be living, it had to be killed. And when it was burned, the ceremonial structure of the Egyptians would be to take the ashes of the burned sacrifice throw them in the air, and that dust would fall down on people and they would welcome it because it would become the healing dust that the gods would use to save them. Isn't it ironic that God uses the same method of pagan sacrifice to illustrate a truth here? Ashes of the sacrifice would be thrown into the air and instead of bringing healing. It would bring leprosy, it would bring boils, maybe even Nile scabs. We're not sure exactly what these boils turned into. All we know is that they were life-threatening and the people would have had to itch them like Job did himself. Pharaoh would know where the soot came from as it multiplied and flowed over his own people, men and beast. This is poetic justice for the Israelites. You see, in the plague right before this, in the fifth plague, they saw the devastation, the economic devastation in their livestock. But now, in the sixth plague, they would feel it. God has made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of the Egyptians, and now God makes a distinction between the Israelites themselves and the Egyptians themselves. The Israelites didn't get boils. Only the Egyptians did. Verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. The musicians were the magicians were not just powerless, but now they were afflicted. So what? Well I want to tell you uh, this is a powerful message, but simple to understand. And that is this, church, God cares for his own. God is not willy-nilly ruining Egypt here. God is establishing that he has a relationship with his people built on love. Remember, Pharaoh is used to transactional stuff. If I do this, God will do this. If I do this big, God will do big back to me. God is saying, Pharaoh, that's not the relationship I have with those I call my own. I have a relationship built on love. God cares for his own. And church, God is not going to lose what he values. So number one, God always claims a people as his own. There always exists a group of people that belong to God. They are his. This is because God values those who belong to him. He went to incredible lengths to go through 10 complex plagues. And what do you think the Israelites felt after they saw and experienced and, and and realized the division between Israel and the, he, uh, the the Hebrews, Israel, and the Egyptians, they would know they belong to God. When the world claims property ownership of its people, they always do so in some oppressive way. But church, when God claims ownership of his people, it's always to liberate us to something greater. This is the message we see in the Exodus. God says, let my people go. He was moving them to something greater. He heard their cries and he was rescuing them because they held deep value to him. When God claims ownership of people, it always designates an incredible personal value that God has for this group of people. God's ownership is always expressed to his people in actions of love. Let me simply ask you this. Is Pharaoh being cared for by God? Nope. Are the Egyptians being cared for by God? No. Are the Hebrews being cared for by God? Yes. That's the point. You have this group of people and this group of people, and God is making a distinction. This group belongs to him. This group does not. God's actions of love toward the Hebrews in Egypt prescribe great value on this group of people. Listen, church, nothing has changed today for those who call themselves God's people. Israel was God's, and he was creating a story with them where he was involving them in in his great masterpiece of life. He was calling them into, into something greater, than they could be on their own. They were God's people, meant to be in God's story, to do God kind of stuff. Today, we are God's people. If you follow Jesus Christ, you are invited to the story that God is putting together in life. You are invited to become a part of what God is building around you. God wants to use you as a part of his people. This is all the way through the New Testament. These are just some of my favorite verses. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine. What does it say, church? You are the branches. John ten fourteen. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. That means that there is a group of people that are not his own. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Paul reminds us, the apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not, church, what does it say? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You say you belong to God. The language is the same. Genesis to Revelation, God has a group of people that belong to him, and he loves them incredibly, and he buys them, and he cares for them, and he rescues them, and he protects them. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter writes it this way. You were once not a people, but now you are, what does it say, church? You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our value as people of God is realized when we see the lengths God goes to in order to rescue us or obtain us. That never changes. Romans eight thirty one says this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Don't you love that? He who did not spare, this is proof that God is for us. This is proof that God is for his people. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you know what that's saying? It's saying that God has bought you with the blood of Jesus Christ. If he went to such incredible lengths, to, to value that you to that level, don't you think that he cares for you? That he knows where you're at? That he protects you? You are still his people and he values you greatly like something he sacrificed his life for so that he could put it on the shelf. And so it could be a, a proclamation of what he cares for and the value that, that he puts in that. God gave his only son to die for our sins. How much more will he graciously give us all things? God sees us as worthy of greater value than simply a tool to be used for his own selfish purposes. (laughs) You see, that's devaluing. That's what Pharaoh did with the slaves. And that's what people do to other people today. But that's not how God deals with relationships. You might be sitting there and saying, okay, God cares for me. God cares for his own, but how do I know it? How do I know God cares for me? Church, is as simple as this. Are you one of his own? If the answer is yes, then God cares for you. Number two, God always cares for his own in distinct ways. The nation of Israel was being cared for by God because God was using them in that part of history, in that part of his story, to build a nation, a nation that would be strong, that would live in the promised land, that would, that would be uh, thriving enough and strong enough that it would bring forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. But today, today the promises are a little different. God is not interested in building a nation for himself in this world. God is interested in building a people for himself a kingdom for himself, made up of people who follow him, his people. God's care for us today does not mean that plagues will fall on our neighbors and they won't fall on us, like with the Egyptians and the Israelites. This does not mean that your business will always prosper. It does not mean your children will not ever tick you off or follow your good example. It does not mean that you will succeed if you just quote Jesus' name a thousand times a day. But what it does mean is that God is for you. We are not promised a physical prosperity in this world. God's people are not promised physical prosperity, but we are guaranteed a spiritual prosperity through God's deposit of the Holy Spirit in us. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 12. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were, get this church sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What is the biggest way, church, that you know you are valued by God today? What is the biggest way you know you're up on his shelf? What is the biggest way you know that God is caring for you, that he has placed value in you? The biggest way is that he has given you a great gift if you belong to God, if you are a follower, if you are in this group of people that are God's people today, you have this deposit of the Holy Spirit in you. That gives you incredible value. That makes you distinct from those around you. Because the Holy Spirit, this person of the Godhead, lives within us and gives us this incredible gift these incredible gifts that we are able to use every single day, He enlightens us. There, are, I'm going to give you a smallest. There's way more on this list than is than I can give you here. But these are some of my favorite. He enlightens us. He opens our eyes to what is true and what is not. You ever wonder why why you're able to say that doesn't sound true and that does sound true? Sometimes that's the Holy Spirit enlightening us. You see, in scripture, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. And when you read God's word and you read it and you go, oh, boy, I never saw that before. Boy, I better bend to that. I better bend the knee to that. I better obey that. That is the Holy Spirit enlightening us to what is true. He sanctifies us. He gives us the ability to have forgiveness of sins on a regular basis. You don't have to put your head on the pillow with guilt on your shoulders anymore. You are you are forgiven, and you are being sanctified. You are being built into an image of Jesus Christ. For some people, it happens fast; tur than others. For some people, it happens slowly. But if you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart, you will become sanctified on a regular basis. He comforts us. Don't you love that one? In fact, one of His names is Comforter. He is the ability to comfort us and bring peace in the most tumultuous of times. He is the one who convicts. This one we learn to love as we grow in Jesus Christ. He convicts means that we understand more and more where we're wrong, and he's right, and we learn to love that. He's the director or the leader of our lives. You ever have an option where you had two good choices? You made one choice and you, you did it because you prayed and you asked God to lead you, it's the Holy Spirit that drives you to make those decisions. And it's the Holy Spirit to give you the power to walk on that path with courage. And he is the one who empowers us. Church, do you know you have the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ inside of you? We sell ourselves short way too often. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, These are empowered by the one and the same spirit. In Romans 8.26, it says he empowers us in our weakness. The bottom line is, church, you have the power of God inside of you, working in you. This is evidence that we belong. Spirit of God is the proof that we belong to him. First John 3.24, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is a very big deal. God values us, so he gives us his spirit, and that makes us his own. Let my people go. If you have the spirit of God inside of you, you're included in that group of people. Listen, church, you may feel like the underdog way too often in life. Don't believe it for a minute. If anybody tells you there's a sin that they can't get rid of, don't believe it for a minute. You see, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is in the spirit of God that person of the Trinity that now lives in you as a part of his people. You are not the underdog. You have the ability to overcome obstacles. You have the ability to be overcomers. Ephesians 3.20. Paul is writing here and he comes and he has to stop and he has to pray because he's talking about the spirit of God who gives us these things and more. He says in Ephesians 3 20 now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think get this church according to the power at work where within us this is why early church martyrs stood before their accusers and stood up for the gospel of Jesus Christ even though they were burned at the stake or killed for their faith in Jesus Christ It is because the power at work within them as the underdogs was greater than the power of those who persecuted them. This is why the gospel exploded. And this is why the church thrives today. If you're wondering, how is it that the church is growing through this pandemic? You've landed on what we're talking about today. (laughs) The church thrives when persecution arrives. The church thrives when it's hard. The church thrives when it's tough. Why? Because the spirit of God is the power that works inside the church. If you belong to God, you're a part of the church. The spirit of God is at work within. One mm-hmm. more question. If the Egyptians had decided, Hey, you know what? I'm going to join with the Hebrews because they're not getting the boils. Their livestock are not dying. There seems to be a real distinction between us and them. I am going to convert. I am going to be a become a part of God's people. Would God have welcomed them in? Absolutely. Would he have blessed them? Absolutely. Would they drink from the water that Moses would strike and get out of the rock? Absolutely. Would they have crossed the Red Sea and be saved from the Egyptian pursuing army? Absolutely. Would their children have had the blessing of growing up in the promised land? Absolutely. And you need to know a lot of them did. When the Israelites left Egypt, a lot of Egyptians went with them because they saw what God was doing. He was making a distinction between this group of people and this group of people. These ones didn't belong to God. These ones did. And they converted to become a part of God's people. And as a result, they received many of the blessings. Why? Because now now they were in the group of people called God's own. And does God care for his own? Absolutely. So church The question I leave you with this morning is this. Are you part of God's people? Are you one of God's own? Because this distinction that God makes doesn't just happen with the Egyptians. It doesn't just happen with Jesus Christ when he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. But it happens all throughout history and it will happen in the end times. God has the power to divide his people from the others. And in the end, that will happen as well. Matthew twenty-five, thirty-two: before him will gather all the nations, Jesus says. Jesus says he will separate people one from the other. This is the end times. When it's the day of judgment, he will separate one people from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. God's people belong to him and he knows his own and he cares for them. So church, How do you know God cares for you? Are you part of his people? Then you should know he values you and he cares for his own. You feel powerless, like you have nowhere to belong. God may be talking to you today. Hear his voice. Join this group of people that are God's people. God will show you that he has more power to free you, protect you and save you. More power than Pharaoh had and more power than sin had. To keep you, God is on an evangelism tour with the Egyptians, with the Israelites, and with us. My encouragement to you, churches: know your, what side you're on. Convert if you need to convert. Understand that God is a kind of God that loves relationship and wants a value instilled in you that you could never otherwise know. God loves you so much he gave you his only son. How much more will he not also give you all things? Let's pray. God, we know you care for us. We know that you love your own. We know that you sacrifice for your own. We know that you value your own. This is a truth of scripture from beginning to end. But with the revelation of Jesus Christ, we see it on such a deep level. And to know that you've given us through the Holy Spirit, the ability to have a relationship with you where you lead us, you guide us, you comfort us, you bring us peace, you convict. I am grateful that you give us all of these proofs so that we know we belong to you. And thank you, Father, that if we do belong to you, we can be sure that you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.